So, yeah, Ines, thanks for coming on. And uh, I'm really excited to talk with you about your book, Death Is Not The End. Thank you, I Kim. Um, happy to be here. And really, you know, I, I was thinking a lot about um, how valuable it is to talk about the concept, the, 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 uh, the death, you know, the process of death during this yes. time because as we're recording this, uh, you're in Germany in lockdown, I'm in Australia in lockdown, and there is this pandemic of the coronavirus um, going around the world. And I feel that uh, the fear of death is definitely a big part right now in, in the consciousness of, of the planet. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So, you know, we'll get, we will definitely be spending a fair bit of time on, on, on uh, you know, hearing your perspective on, on death and, and maybe also how we can bring some peace and some equanimity around that. Um, but I would like to start with just a bit of background uh, about yourself and uh, and maybe even we're kind of going beyond, and I like that in, in your book, you know, you, you touch a little bit about your, your lineage, your parents and grandparents and their approach to spirituality. And, and I was especially moved by the passage where you talk about your grandmother who had been a very devout Christian until she experienced the bombing of Dresden during the Second World mm -hmm. War, which was one yes. of the most devastating bombing attacks of that war. And um, maybe you could talk a bit about how that impacted her experience of spirituality and how that then was passed down your family. Yeah, so um, with my grandma, I just... I didn't experience her as very <clears throat> Christian or spiritual because I think, I mean, she kind of gave that up before I was born. Um, but she did tell me that uh, they did go to church. They they were, um, they believed in God and they, you know, they had all this, these beliefs until that uh, bombing happened. And, you know, she told me stories about after the bombing, they would go out on the um, marketplace and there would be a, just a pile of dead bodies and the whole city would smell and people would go around the neighborhood turning over bodies to see if it's relatives. And um, and as a kid, I just I couldn't even imagine ever going through something like that. That's something you see in the movie, but not that anybody has lived through that or my grandma has lived through that. And I think that kind of shook her faith. And then she said, if, if, if God can let this happen, then there's no God. And she just stopped believing or stopped going to church. And, and my parents also, because I grew up in East Germany, uh, it was more social. Anyway, they weren't supporting so much of the religion. Um, so a lot of people in East Germany actually weren't that religious. But my parents, especially too, they um, they just kind of believed in reproduction, and um, we're here for a short time. We reproduce. We try to be good people, and they are good people, regardless of um, fear of hell or or not. Or I, I think they are. Um, you certainly don't need to be Christian to be a good person. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah, but um, 
um, yeah, they kind of didn't even believe in the spirit or in in anything, which for me was kind of strange because as a young uh, child, I pondered life a lot and I thought about why am I here, who am I, who's this I, sense of I and myself, and I thought about that for hours and I always sensed there's some kind of purpose or some kind of intelligence or universal field i mean i couldn't explain it and i didn't have the concept of god and, and these were just feelings and thoughts that are arising spontaneously in you or was there anything that inspired you or any influences or i think it was always this multi-dimensional sense that i had i could sense energy i could um i i would kind of look beyond the physical in a way and I, but I also sense that it, to me it just didn't make sense that we just come here randomly by some accident and then we die and there's no purpose to it. Um, I always kind of had this idea of reincarnation made more sense to me somehow. And I think that's just because of other lives I had or of the connection to the multidimensional. Yeah, I think mm. that's and you, you talked it was more about like a, a certainty. Child. Sorry. Yeah, you talked about as a child that you had some experiences where you really tangibly perceived uh, extra physical presences. Uh, how how would that how yeah. did that happen? Do you remember? Yeah, I had um, also uh, out of body experiences when I was younger spontaneously, but I also had when I was like in a crisis. You know, even though there were like childhood crises. But I would, I didn't know how to pray or didn't have a connection with, with God, but I would sense beings. And there was like two beings, but to me, they felt more like scientists. Like I sensed them like intelligent people who were there to help me. And there's no sense of punishment or anything like that. And some would say they're like angels or um, helpers or extra physical mentors. And to me, I always pictured them as two scientists in the rope, and then they would help me. And they would be very wise and intelligent, and they would calm me down, make myself think more clear. And I thought it was very strange because I, I didn't grow up with the idea of angels or anything like that, but I turned to them, and somehow they seemed to help me. Mm. And did you ever discuss that with your parents, for example? No, never. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Also, they didn't even like the idea. Later on, at around age 15, I wanted to like understand uh, the idea of reincarnation and of God or explore at least explore God more in the broad sense of my first book was Joseph Murphy, The Power of Your Subconscious Mind. I don't know if you remember that book from the 80s. And it talks about how our thoughts impact reality and how what we think affects our reality and that um, the positive and the negative. And, but it, has, it also talks a little bit about, about God, but in a very positive way. And I was introduced to the idea that we are not just kind of put here and we can't do anything about our world, but that our consciousness can impact what's happening in our reality. And I was very fascinated with that. 
but anyway, when my parents found out I was reading these books, they wanted to stop me. They didn't want me to read anything that had God in it, even though it was very positive. Mm. Um, so I didn't really talk about that very much. Yeah, so it was really self-generated. Yeah, and, and later almost, on through reading. Yeah, yeah almost like controversial reading. that you were pursuing that in your family. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> they definitely thought something was wrong with me. And, but I like the idea of creating my own beliefs in a way of based on what I read, what I understand, what makes sense to me. And early on, also, I read books about near-death experiences, astral projection. And it was always, I had this feeling of, this feels like home, this makes so much sense. Um, I didn't question it too much because I had multidimensional experiences. Yeah. I don't know about you, how that was for you when you were younger. Yeah, I wasn't really, um, I wasn't really pursuing those things in any deliberate way at that age. Um, I remember as a teenager feeling probably reincarnation made sense and Buddhism, I was kind of interested in Buddhism, but I never pursued. I was mm -hmm. very busy just <coughs> kind of hanging out with my mates and drinking a lot, you know. So I didn't have these ambitions at that stage. It came a bit later in my 20s um, that I really started looking into that. Mm -hmm. But then but then it was much the same. It felt, I like the way you describe it, it felt like home, you know. It was like, yeah, these things really resonated at a deep level. Um, yeah. And I, so, so that's really interesting. So for you, that was like already as a teenager, you were, you know, kind of connecting with these ideas. And then you had this experience in your early 20s that really probably for the first time by the sounds of it really confronted you with your mortality in a way that we often yes. aren't in the 20s. So yeah. maybe you could talk a bit about that. Yes. Um, so then I moved. Um, I did a year au pair uh, in near Washington, D.C. to learn English. And then I ended up going back to the States after that to work there. And met my future husband there. So we got married. And I went through the green card uh, process, getting my papers. And um, as part of that process, they do a health check. And so they took my blood and they checked everything. And I was uh, 23 at the time. Um, and, and then the doctor called me and said, you can come pick up your papers. So I went after work, not thinking anything. And, and then they took me in and basically told me that uh, I was HIV positive based on those results. And I was, of course, in shock because I was not part of a risk group or I, I didn't even worry. I knew they were testing that, but I wasn't worried, like, you know, uh, that that would be a possibility. So uh, that was a big shock. Um, and it really, it had, like, two aspects to it. One was this sense of loss, like my future life. I didn't know what that meant at that point. Um, Cause I, 
I hadn't even read much lately about the disease or what that meant. So I assumed I had like 10 years to live and I would die a horrible death of AIDS and all of that. And the other side was this kind of waking up where life shakes you and it's like, wow, you don't have forever. You have to appreciate life now and do something with your life now. Um, but, you know, as it works, it all goes in stages and processes. So the first, the first years were very scary. I was in a lot of fear about dying. Um, and there was a medication available. And also I was told that we could live longer eventually. Um, but I was afraid of the medication because I had read websites that they're toxic and some people are fine until they take those medications and then they die. So somehow I got into this kind of conspiracy or I believed in it and I didn't want to take the treatment, but I um, also wanted to live. And then I did all the um, alternative approaches that I could do like visualization, meditation, uh, working out, sports, taking tons of vitamins, anything you can imagine to try. I tried to heal myself and I believed I could somehow heal myself. Mm. <clears throat> but then five years later, um, the you know, we're always uh, monitoring the virus and it just got worse and worse. My health declined and it was getting very close to AIDS. And I knew if I get sick then or even like a, a flu or um, food poisoning or anything then can, can kill you. So then I went through this whole fear crisis again for a few months. And I knew I had the option of taking the treatment, but I was afraid of that too. And so in my mind, it was like, am I going to die either from the disease and from not taking the medication or am I going to die from the allergic reaction to the medication? So I was very conflicted. And I, during this time, I was deeply immersed into reading books about death and afterlife and near-death experiences and kind of some channeling and searching for answers mm. of what to do and what to expect. And that really comforted me. And then eventually I decided to, my best shot is to do the treatment. And thank God it worked well. I didn't have any side effects and I have been uh, undetectable ever since and haven't had any problems. So, um, <clears throat> so that was good. But until that, that point, those five years, it was like my whole life was just about the disease and not dying. And... After that, kind of the medication gave that relief of, okay, you're kind of healthy now. You have still a lot of life left. What are you going to do? And that's that when I decided to find an organization to volunteer to and eventually write a book. Yeah, yeah, because you felt you'd, obviously felt like you'd learned a lot from your experience that you wanted to share, yes. right? That could be, yeah. And I, I just, I just find that actually quite. Given our current situation, um, uh, you know, I've, I've noticed uh, around the coronavirus business, there's quite a lot of fear circulating around 
medications and potential vaccines yeah. and all the detrimental impacts they have. And I, I get the sense, well, I, I know that there is, among people who are into multidimensionality and, and other aspects of life beyond the physical, there's often a real distrust of mainstream allopathic medicine. Um, and um, I, I just think it's a really good reminder, your example, that there is a place for that medicine, right? And, yes, yes. And, and the body is sick. Uh, absolutely. And that, I was like that. I was like black and white. It was like has to be natural and alternative, has to be with your mind healing yourself. And all the Western medications kind of bad or toxic or whatever. And it just, you know, afterwards I realized it's very black and white thinking and I almost died from it um, and now I'm much more the middle way you know mm. I wouldn't do any harsh treatment like right away I would try different things but combine them and I, I, I think so too I, I also want people to know that it doesn't have to be either or just explore different options yeah, um, yeah we do have good medications but also there are alternative approaches that, that do work too. Yeah. But it kind of depends on the person. I mean, that's another fascinating topic, how we heal and why we heal and even emotional blocks or mm. inner beliefs that can help us or block us. Yeah. You know, we can take all the best medication, but if we have a certain sense of uh, expectation, then our body might fulfill that. Um, well, you share it's a another topic. You, well, it is, but it also fits with your your um, uh, you know with with in your book because you you share a really fascinating story of um, a woman who during a near death or after a near death experience um, has a remarkable remission of cancer um, that she was basically yes. dying of, and then because of healing that happened out of the body. Um, she seems to she seems to then heal physically. Yes, I think that's fascinating to just that, that that shift. I mean, she had that glimpse into the after afterlife or in the non physical dimensions, and just higher realization of her whole life and lives before, and how her fears. That was Anita Morjani. Her book is called. Uh, live to die or um, but anyways it's a very fascinating uh, book but she realized that a lot of what created the cancer in the first place was her fear of it and she had all these fears of what to eat or not to eat and it just kind of contributed and then she was able to let go of it mm. afterwards and uh, yeah, I mean, we do that all the time too, right? So yeah. Yeah, you this don't is necessarily bad for have me. to have a near-death experience to transform your thinking, right? Yeah, exactly. Mm. But you, so, you know, you, as you just described, you read a lot in that period, you studied and, and I guess afterwards you've continued to study and you, you there's different kind of pillars that you, or, you know, research areas that you outline in your book um, that you pr provide as mm -hmm. the evidence towards life beyond yes. the physical. 
And so these include things like Ian Stevens's work on child memories of past lives. Yes. You talk about um, experiences of people who had trans organ transplants and, and have certain perceptions of other people. Um, mm -hmm. There is, I think, after-death communications and yes. um, there is uh, near-death experiences. I don't know if I missed something, but uh, maybe you could... Out-of-body experiences. Hey, oh, yes, and those, of course. The out-of-body. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so maybe you yeah, could right. touch on, on each of those, just, mm -hmm. you know, why you find them compelling and what... what yes. And um, in a brief synopsis of, like, the key bits that, that really... Mm -hmm go towards showing us that life does extend beyond this physical dimension. Yeah, so the first one that I focus on a lot on is uh, basically the outer body experience because I have had them and I've um, taught classes about them. So I've been, a lot of my research has been with outer body experiences um, or also known as um, astral travel. You can kind of exchange these two words but um, <clears throat> the idea is that in the out-of-body experience we can uh, at, while we're healthy while we're uh, usually asleep we can disconnect the our uh, astral body from the physical body and explore in the non-physical dimension because the astral body is non-physical and it's connected to the physical body through the silver cord and um, it's not necessarily an easy thing to do. It has a lot to do with training our awareness and our energies and sometimes also our sense of how we see things. If we're very physical, we believe this is all that exists. It will be harder than if we're open to other realities. Um, but there's ways to experiment with that and to learn it, to train it, and Basically, the motto has always been explore for yourself. You know, don't necessarily believe what uh, is in the books or what we, we tell you even in the classes, but explore for yourself and see if this is real. And because I have had them, um, I've been outside my body, I've went through walls, I've been flying around the neighborhood um, and many different other experiences that confirmed this for me. Um, I that was my confirmation and I went deeply into the study of astral projection of out-of-body experiences but it is uh, a way to explore the afterlife because basically when you go out of body you go to those dimensions where uh, we were before we were born uh, where our loved ones are after they die uh, maybe waiting to be born or preparing to be born again and how we connect with that whole um, realm in a way. So and it's a very good tool to connect to that. And what would you say to people, because um, I've heard this argument before, that um, out-of-body experiences aren't really uh, an argument because while we have them, we have a physical body. So they might just be things that are happening in the brain and... Um, you know, so they, maybe they're not really an argument for life existing without the physical body because we don't mm -hmm. have, you know, the I mean, like they seem to be only people report them who have a physical body. Yeah. Um, 
Well, there's, I mean, in my book too, under the section of the evidence, there are other great books, uh, even medical doctors who've studied the phenomena very deeply, like this uh, cardiologist, Bin Malamo, who did uh, studies with his cardiac arrest patients. Um, okay, that was near-death experiences. Uh, but with the out-of-body experiences, it's, well, in a way, it's hard to confirm for other people because you have to have the experience to prove that to yourself. And given also that maybe about 25% of people actually have them. So not everybody has had an out-of-body experience. So that kind of lowers also the percentage of people who do. Um, <clears throat> but there are some experiences, just like with near-death experiences, where you can go to a place, observe uh, a situation, and bring back evidence, and then check that later. Um, and there are studies for that too, um, or joint projections where two people can meet outside the body, and they both yeah. remember that afterwards. So that really um, goes so to the waste. fact that, that sorry, that those things really go to the fact that they're quite objective experiences, right? That they're yeah, they can be. I, I would say 80% are subjective or they happen in realms that we can't prove. But there are some that happen in the physical world or let's say I go around the block and I see an accident. Mm. I can come back and Google it or go outside and check it and confirm it. And those are more rare, but they do exist yeah. for sure. Yeah, And near-death experiences are um, uh, also basically also out-of-body experiences, only that they have the death aspect related to it or um, they're coming close to death. But there's also many, many studies that have been done where people observe things or they could repeat conversations mm. that they shouldn't have been able to hear or see. Um, <clears throat> and sometimes that's the whole idea of the book. Sorry, I was going to say, sometimes in conditions when the physical body actually is essentially dead right so switched off yeah no actually no, no brain activity the ears are taped up the uh, eyes are taped off there's no brain activity um and yet they can still see and hear a lot of things and um and so i put many of these examples in the book uh for people to go deeper and, and see okay it's not just an idea or based on my beliefs, but this, these things have been studied pretty mm. well. Yeah. And I feel yeah. like not a lot of people know about it. You know, they know the, the idea of, oh, maybe it's a hallucination or something that happens in the brain. But when you kind of dig deeper, they haven't really explored the evidence as much. Well, yeah, that's that's the thing, right? With the near-death experiences, um, I was going to ask you about that. Like, there's so you so often hear this sort of line of, well, nobody really knows what happens after death, um, when really there seems to be quite a lot of information about that, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so once you get interested, you can find a lot of very good information, and like I said, medical doctors, scientists that study it very controlled or that um, it kind of check off all the um, arguments like, is it a 
uh, low oxygen? Is it a hallucination? And they kind of go into details and check them all off and explain. In this case, it's different because, and you probably also have heard of the shared death experiences where uh, maybe one person is dying, has kind of a near-death experience, but then there's a healthy person, like a visitor or even like a nurse, who can see the same things or who can share their experience and they're perfectly healthy. They don't take medication. They're not ill or anything. So why does that happen? Uh, how so can that what happen? would be an example? Like what would they be seeing? Are they seeing like, for example, visitors, like, like non-physical people in the room or what kind of things does the healthy person experience? Um, yeah, so sometimes they see... Uh, it, it's almost as if there's like this kind of veil that goes over the, the let's say in the hospital, they're in the hospital and kind of a shift in energies. And they can see that there are non-physical beings waiting. They can see them too. Or sometimes they even uh, almost step out of reality for a moment and go with them in their experience where they go to the kind of a threshold of where at the end of that they pass over and die and they're kind of able to go with them a little bit to that point up until that point or simply that they see uh, the astral body lifting out of the body at the moment of death um, but the shared experience obviously they come back to talk about it yeah and then they confirm to each other i've seen that too or i've seen the same persons in the room Mm. And uh, those are fascinating because you could say the ill person is under medication, has a hallucination. <clears throat> but sometimes it's even two, three people who see the same things happening in that moment and they're perfectly healthy. Yeah. Yeah, those are it's definitely fascinating stories. And then you also, and I don't know if this is quite the same, I think there's a bit of a difference there, the, the after-death communications um how do you so so i'm just i'll just read a passage from your book yeah you, you use mm -hmm. that term after death communications based on bill and judy guggenheim and you say they define uh, an after death communication as a spiritual experience that occurs when you are contacted directly and spontaneously by a deceased family member or friend without the use of psychics mediums rituals or devices of any kind. Um, yes, um, and those are pretty common, actually. Um, I've had some after-death communications, but when you ask people, um, people don't share them as much. They kind of happen to keep them to themselves. But in these studies that Bill and Judy Guggenheim did, they found it was about thirty to forty percent of people who actually have had at least one of these types of experiences and where so they are, are bereaved, contacted. Recently bereaved people, 30 or 40% of recently bereaved people will have an experience like that. Yes, so mm. that they see the deceased or they feel something or they hear something or there are many different ways of this communication. It could be like uh, lights going on and off. It could be like feeling uh, like a hug from someone or a kiss or sometimes an apparition or partial apparition. And <clears throat> that happens also a lot uh, at the moment of death. 
that they suddenly see that person standing in the room and then a few hours later they find out the person has died so they didn't even know that before mm. you um, have an experience like that you talk about in your book right yeah um you want to share that yeah um i was i don't remember maybe 14 um but i was doing my homework i was at home alone and we had our computer set up kind of in the hallway and and so i was working there on the computer and i felt all of a sudden like a, a, a presence like someone was in the apartment it's not a big apartment it's like a flat like uh four bedrooms small bedrooms and i also heard like footsteps and i thought that's weird i know i'm nobody's here it's the afternoon and i could really feel like someone was there and i heard these footsteps in my brother's room and i got up uh and i said hello hello someone there and i thought in my own head i thought how weird that is i've never done that i mean i never i hear noises all the time strange things but i never actually said hello to someone there so i was kind of surprised about myself but it really felt different so i went there to check and of course nobody was there and i went back to the computer and <clears throat> at the time i was also a little bit more afraid of these of ghosts you know in the yeah. sense and I've, i felt uncomfortable um so i tried to ignore it and tune it out and just continue on my work but then a little bit later i felt like this present standing right behind me like looking over my shoulder and onto the screen and i was like oh this is really weird and i uh communicated it wasn't scary but it was just so uncomfortable and then i communicated with my thoughts please go away please go away it's, it's freaking me out and then like a few minutes later was gone and it was almost like the energy shifted in the apartment and i didn't feel it anymore i forgot about it went back to my work and then the next day um the next day my mom came to my room and she said i have bad news um my um dad's half brother died yesterday and so she told me about his death and in that moment i remembered wow that that's must have been what i felt i must have felt him coming here to check on us or say goodbye or something and yeah. i was able to feel him and <clears throat> for me it was a confirmation because if she told me before that someone died and then i had all these hearing noises and feeling this strange sensations could have been premeditated but i didn't it just happened spontaneously and then it was confirmed afterwards so for me it was like definitely um a real after death communication and i can't say for sure that that was him but it's pretty likely and it happened around the same time yeah of his death yeah well it would be quite a remarkable coincidence if it was something else right it's um yeah seems very plausible mm. and so many of these things happen to people or they lost someone or sometimes they say they have dreams with them that are different from normal dreams and i believe some of these dreams are out of body experiences where they meet up again in the realm and 
communicate their last goodbyes or, you know, sometimes information that the family needs. My, my uh, granny, my granny would um, always talk about her, her husband died. My grandfather died years, decades before her. And for the rest of her life, she said every night she, she met him, he was waiting for her. Um, she would dream of him pretty much every night. So she was yeah. very confident that he was going to be there. Yeah. Interesting. I, I also heard from a friend to like she, her husband um, died and then he would always just stay with her. People would see him on the plane. Uh, he was already dead, but many people would actually see him with her and he would go everywhere she was. Mm. So, yeah, that's definitely also an avenue. Um, and there's a lot of the debate too, like, you know, does that happen because people want to have contact or they miss the person or do they imagine it or is it a hallucination? But again, once you go deeper into the topic and sometimes they get information from the uh, deceased loved one, like a code to the safe or anything like that that they couldn't have known uh, that can be confirmed later, then it, it doesn't seem to be such an accident anymore or just like they made it up. Like how could they have made that up? Yeah. 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 And it seems like something where we can actually start developing uh, a relationship and then maybe start having communications with that person, right? Sort of building that once we get comfortable with the fact that there's somebody. Yeah. And, <clears throat> and now if you've, read uh, science in different other fields like quantum science and energy and I mean there's so many different things you could explore on a whole different level <clears throat> which also in a way can confirm how this could be possible I mean even having multiple realities or multiple dimensions is not such an uh, out there idea I mean when you go into science, there are a lot of weird things that happen that they can't explain. And um, it's just good to be open to it and to take it yeah. into consideration. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm quite reluctant to, to, you know, sort of refer to quantum physics and so on just because I don't really understand it. Um, but from what, I from what I do understand, it seems to provide models that definitely allow for the kind of multidimensional experiences that we're talking about here and mm -hmm. which for me are very much a part of reality. So that does seem to be a, a, the signs that we need for that. Yeah. And maybe one day it'll all kind of come together. Yeah. And right now we're just studying everything separately. Yeah. Uh, but it's definitely worth studying it. And but uh, the best thing is always, obviously, if uh, not that we need to convince anybody, but if we have the experience, like after-death communication or out-of-body experience or remembering a past life, maybe through hypnosis or through some other um, modality, then... Uh, yeah, it makes it makes it more real, or it just um, 
Yeah, our own experience will always will always help to understand it than trying to convince someone that that's how it is. You can't you can't convince anybody yeah. of these things. That um, it's really I've known I've known a guy who's had three. He was clinically dead three times. He got hit by a truck. He drowned once, I think, and something else happened. And he never remembered anything. He had never had an experience. Mm -hmm. right? And so he was very, very sure that <coughs> when he dies, it'll be nothing because that was his experience. Right. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's kind of not really something to argue with at that point in time. I mean, you can yeah. invite people to look, you know, someone in that position to look at the evidence of everybody, many, many other people's experiences. Mm -hmm. But, um, it's a strong thing if you have those kinds of experiences, even if they are nothing. Yeah, that, that too. Yeah. yeah. But uh, that's actually an interesting point. I was going to ask you, you know, about uh, just it seems to me that people respond differently sometimes to these experiences. So some people have a near-death experience and they feel, you know, enriched. They feel perhaps more at peace. They make, they heal physically. But I've also noticed, uh, you know, looking at people discussing their experiences, that quite a lot of people have near-death experiences and they, they can really struggle to adjust back to physical life afterwards because they've got, they, they feel this strong longing to return mm -hmm. to the state that they experienced when, um, when they had the near-death experience. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know what you, your thoughts and, and insights on that are. Yeah, I've, I've definitely, through attending the groups, the IONS groups and meetings and hearing so could, could you just many of these accounts. Could you just explain what IONS? Yes, uh, IONS is the International uh, Association for Near-Death Studies. Yeah. And they, uh, different cities hold monthly groups uh, usually inviting a speaker who has had or sharing their own near-death experiences. and But they also have conferences, they do research, they invite uh, these doctors that study near-death experiences or people who've had interesting near-death experiences and they're kind of expanding on that whole field. Um, so, yes, so I attended some of those meetings and I've read uh, many of these accounts and it's it's true that it's kind of uh, it kind of takes you out of your old life and you get this glimpse of this other uh, realm or you could say home or where you were before you were born and uh, they're not always uh, beautiful experience or very happy a lot of them are some can be distressing they can see things about themselves, like a life review, where uh, they see their how their thoughts and their actions and their choices have impacted other people around them. And sometimes that can cause them to feel like they uh, need to do better or they could have done better or that they have something to still catch up on in their life or their life mission. And at the same time, <clears throat> when they're beautiful experience in a lot of times people would describe the sense of being immersed in, in love and full acceptance 
that doesn't really exist here um, since our love is in a way conditional, but there they experience this unconditional love that they long to go back to that and to that um, dimension and then they struggle being here and dealing with all of the hardships of life and adjusting to bring that idea of that realm and our physical life together. So, yeah, I can see that. I've had one out-of-body experience that was, um, it was a very simple one, but I was kind of in the, in the realm, like floating in the, uh, looking down at this ocean and river. And I felt also felt this, this love, this overwhelming love. And it was like this experience that was just so different from any normal dream I have had. And when I came back, that whole feeling of love stayed with me for like a week. Like I would see the whole world differently. I was very calm and peaceful and I could, could feel that love and then it dissipated. But I always, always try to go back, have an out-of-body experience, to go back to that place. You know, I had the same feeling like I want to go back there and yeah. feel that feeling. And it never happened again. It just, I guess back then just happened spontaneously and I was never able to, to go back. But I get the, the feeling of I want to go back there. Um, and... Yeah, I think the reason why we're here is to accomplish certain things, right? To have a, a life mission, to do something specific with our life. And mm. it's not always easy. And it's not easy for people who've had near-death experiences or out-of-body experiences. And even though we know, or some of us have this kind of certainty that we don't die uh, after this body dies, we still exist. We still can come back. There's still more to do. Um, doesn't make it easier. Right? It doesn't mean we're completely... Um, <clears throat> we completely lose our fear of pain or of suffering or of losing our loved ones or um, feeling that void when somebody dies. You know, all of these things are very human. They're very related to the body, too. We might have a different perspective when we're, <clears throat> um, when we're non-physical or even after we pass away, we might have a different experience or understanding of it. But while we're here, you know, that's our reality and um, it doesn't take away all the fears that we have. No, no. And I, I think that's a really important thing to to hold, to be able to hold that, right, to, to be, on the one hand, to really deepen that sense of immortality, um, mm -hmm. but at the same time not at the cost of, of being a human being, of being... Right. Because we actually are also mortal, right? It's kind of like both yes. because that, this identity will... We will lose it. We won't be yeah. who we are right now. And we will lose our loved ones as they are right now. Um, yeah. yeah, and finding that balance of kind of preparing ourselves for it too. That's part a big part of the book to help people also prepare for death uh, or someone else's death or to being able to let go or work through it um, to understand it and 
to give some comfort and some understanding of what happens after, because I do think it is comforting to read near-death experiences or to read the evidence yeah. and um, to hold on to that, but also at the same time prepare um, maybe more realistically, right? Because sometimes also we can be very immersed in life and forget that we could die at any moment, we could die next week or in 10, 20 years, or we could lose someone close to us. We kind of like blend that out yeah. if everything is going well. Yeah. And we for uh, forget sometimes the uh, preciousness of life and the time that we have and how to make use of that maybe in a better way. Unfortunately, until something happens and we're reminded like, okay, maybe I can start, you know, working more on my personal projects or yeah. uh, should I waste that much time watching four hours TV every night and maybe there's something else for me to do. Yeah, um, yeah I really like there's so many practical aspects in your, in your book, even, even um, how you just talk about getting our affairs in order um not just so they're in order right but for kind of as a plan for the our period after we die so mm-hmm. but maybe before we touch on that i actually thought it might be good if you actually talk about what is death as you understand it right how how would you explain the process of death and how it fits into our experiences as consciousness uh, yes, yeah, so the, the death would be the death of the physical body. That's kind of what I'm talking about. Um, because as my understanding is the consciousness itself is, doesn't die. Uh, it continues on evolution uh, in many different ways. And the consciousness also uses different types of body. So there's like the mental body, you could say, which are more deeply described in the book. There's the energetic body, which connects um, the non-physical body to the physical body via the energies. And then we have this very physical body that we see and that we use every day in our world. And so death can actually be a process of disconnecting first the physical body. So that's what we know, right? Everybody kind of knows of death, losing the physical body. through an accident or illness or old age, naturally. And uh, but then there's also more aspects to the process of death in which the so, energy so, so connections maybe, get to. S- maybe if we break it down, so so the physical body dies. Th- what happens? Say say there is a sudden. It's a sudden. It's a sudden death. There's an accident. The physical body is mm-hmm. destroyed straight away. Talk us through the process. Uh, yes. So the first is the, the disconnection then from the physical body. And there are a few cases where people come back and heal who have near-death experiences, but generally the person dies. And they tend to linger around with their non-physical body for the first few days uh, where they're still very connected to their physical life they sometimes make contact with their loved ones, like the after-death communications. And then there's the process of also understanding what happened as the, the consciousness 
when I say consciousness, I mean the being, the essence of the being that still lives without the body. Um, if it's a, like a shock, they might have to recover from that shock. Um, also depends a lot on their level of awareness of how they understand what just happened and how they're able to move on. And then there are processes of disconnecting energetically from the physical body and also psychologically from the old life to be able to move on. So it's a, so it's this is a like an adjustment period where yes. so the person essentially um, is still the same person who they were, right? Just without the physical body. Yes. Um, and a lot of times we think of it as this horrible experience. Um, <clears throat> but when you read these accounts uh, or when you understand the process, it's actually kind of a, a freeing in a sense. So the physical body gives kind of a restriction to our essence. It limits everything. And or we are in pain or we're unhealthy. And then when you die, it's kind of taking something off and you become more free, more open. You sense more your non-physical body has more capabilities. And it's it can be very freeing and uh, lightening or beautiful experience. Um, <clears throat> versus being born where you're this big spirit, you have this intellectual understanding sometimes for many lives and then you're being born in this little body you enter this little body which doesn't have a developed brain yet who still has to grow up and to be able to use that consciousness it's much more of a shock being born than than dying to the being itself but obviously for everybody left behind it's that's where more of the the shock and the horribleness is experienced not so much in the, the consciousness itself not so much in the person uh, but it's a whole different way of thinking about it yeah and understanding it it's more like thinking about it from the non-physical looking into the physical right rather than looking mm -hmm. from the physical out yeah yeah um and and so and one of the things so you talked about how the 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 newly extra physical person um, is still attached in the beginning to their body, to their relatives, maybe to their home. Um, and so one of the points that you make about getting your affairs in order, for example, your will and who gets what and so on, is to help f uh, if there's more peace for the people left behind that they don't right. evoke mm. you so much, right? <clears throat> what is that evocation? Yeah. Can you talk a bit about that process of evoking yeah, uh, it's it's kind of like um, that unfinished business in a sense, you know, that they sometimes talk about where if somebody just suddenly leaves in an accident, they have a lot of things that are un uncleared where the um, <clears throat> people left behind <clears throat> are struggling with, you know, what, what did you want, what was her will, or what should we do next, or how should we handle all of this? And uh, all, but also the pain and uh, the grief that kind of keeps uh, keeps uh, them calling the spirit back or keeps talking to them, saying like, you know, where are the papers for the house? For just for as a as example, and they worry about that. 
And so they have to connect to you all the time based on sometimes very simple uh, things of organization afterwards. Um, they obviously connect to you also because they grieve you and they miss you. But there are certain things that you can kind of already clear out, right? So if you have, uh, if you let everybody know what you want to happen after your death, how you want things to be handled, where should your money, your assets go to, then it's much more clear for them. And also for you, uh, you don't have to come back as much to deal with these issues. Or let's say you realize, oh, my money is going to the state. I didn't want it to go to the state. I wanted to go to my kids because you didn't have a will. Then me as the soul or as the consciousness feels like I have to go back to my old life and try to fix fix this, even though it's very hard to do that from that state, you know, but then we feel the need like, well, that's not what I wanted. And we might feel like we have to come back and stick around. Whereas, um, if we had these things prepared, we could move on yeah. uh, much better. So there are a lot of energetic aspects to it. It's interesting. And, in, and in, also Aboriginal, the, in Aboriginal culture here in Australia, um, there was a practice of avoiding saying the name of recently deceased. And uh-huh. um, the way it's been explained to me is precisely so as not to continuously evoke the person. So there's a period of time during which mm-hmm. the name isn't spoken. Um, and there's the kind of a, many people aren't sure whether the person has died in a happy state or not a happy state. Maybe they're angry. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're, they're basically not safe until mm-hmm. they've been dead for a while. And mm-hmm. then, you know, then they become an ancestor and then they're, uh, I guess, can be a source of support. But I find that interesting. It's kind of similar to what you describe of that process. Yeah, it is. And it's interesting that these native cultures, sometimes they kind of get that sense. They're much more connected to the non-physical and they understand these mechanisms. Yeah. And, and yeah, even with the outer body, trying to meet people out of body, we would usually say, give it a year, at least six months or a year to try to connect to them because they might be going through their own process of, adjustment over there and yeah so so talking about that process of adjustment you you talk about um you suggest in your book for people to maybe go and visit a a hospital a sort of reception hospital Mm -hmm. um out of body so what 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 can you say happens happens in those spaces just to kind of see the the other side of it Right when we go to the hospital, and uh, if you go there out of body, you see um, you can see people when they're passing away how the their non physical body disconnects. You can maybe even go a little bit with them and share some of their death experience with them, and you see all the stuff that goes on in the background. Um, and there you see there's a lot of assistance also. With surgeries, there are, the, of course, the surgeons and the nurses, but you could also see there's non-physical support. They're guiding the operation or guiding the birth or guiding the process of death. And, and that's just a very good way to see how people die or when they're born, um, how the, this whole, whole infrastructure around them. 
Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, this is whole infrastructure. Yeah, from the other side. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and now you talked about preparing for death, right? And that's another thing I really like about your book. It, it kind of seems to emphasize that preparation for death really involves living a good life and living a life mm -hmm. in which we accomplish what we would wanted to accomplish. Um, so you talk about the, you know, the, like a life program and so on. Can you, yeah, just talk a bit about, about that aspect mm -hmm. about how do we live our life in view of the fact that we are all going to die and we want to make it a, a, a happy event, really. Yeah, exactly. Um, so one, one thing that people describe a lot in near-death experiences, but also what you see in out-of-body experiences, talking to people who've passed on, <clears throat> is that after they pass away, there's kind of a... Um, you know, kind of a conclusion of the life of kind of looking back, like what we might, might do at the end of the day. And we look back to that. Was I able to do today what I wanted or did I not? And if I didn't, why didn't I uh, do X, Y, and Z? We're kind of take an inventory of what, uh, what happened during the day. And then that we do that with our life, kind of seeing um, also more of, I have to say, before we are born, uh, most of us have kind of a life plan too. It's not um, set in stone. It's not very detailed necessarily, but there are certain um, traits that we have, certain skills that we have, certain decisions that we make before in which direction our life will go and how we will contribute, uh, one, contributing to other people's lives and that also involves karma that we might have had from other lives that we're trying to resolve to balance out. Also helping each other. And the third aspect is helping us evolve. So there's always a combination of clearing things from the past, of supporting each other in, our, in all of our life plans, and at the same time helping us evolve to a more wholesome being, you could say. And so that's just like the essence of it. So most of us come into life with a sense of a plan of um, what we want to do and accomplish. And then after life, when we pass away, we kind of take inventory. Was I able to accomplish that and how much of it? And Or did I get completely lost because something happened in my childhood and I ended up being addicted or... Um, totally losing sight of my life for many other reasons and why did this happen and how could I make it better in the next life so it's not so much of a punishment necessarily but it's kind of a looking back and ideally we don't want to wait until we pass away to take that inventory we want to through our life already <clears throat> go through it and say okay where am I now uh, is there something that I really want to do, contribute with, or use my skills? Let's say I have certain experiences that can help other people. In my case, it is. it might be talking about HIV or the experiences that I have and how I've gone through all, from all this fear and struggle through a more acceptance and able to talk about it. 
um, or the experience with out-of-body experiences or other skills that I have, like writing. Uh, and so everybody has uh, skills or experiences that they can use to help others. And, and yeah, the idea is to not wait till the end, but throughout our lives to kind of stop and say, okay, I have so many years left. What do I want to do? And maybe 10 years ago, I already wanted to write that book, but I didn't. And what has kept me from it? And then take steps, really practical steps on, on doing that, on working our, on our life plan. And we might not always know what, what that is exactly. It's not like we get a paper that says you, have, you should do A, B, A, B C. But a lot of times in life, we have these crossroads and we kind of get a sense of, I should go in this direction. And might not always make sense to other people, but to kind of follow that, what feels peaceful to us or where we feel the urge, like, I want to start making this movie about, you know, or a documentary about a topic that will help a lot of people understand the trash in our oceans, for example, just as an example. And then to kind of actually go towards that and take the steps. So that at the end of life, <clears throat> we feel uh, satisfied. And then our death can be very positive. We can feel, um, you know, we contributed. We can feel like we, we didn't just take, but we gave something back. And, and that d- depends a lot on each person too. Some are just here to grow, to develop certain traits. They're still kind of dealing with their own issues and they might need a whole life to deal with that. And then others are already kind of past that and they have more capacity to, um, to have to work less for themselves and bring more of themselves to others. So we're all on different levels of evolution, you could say. And the idea is to pull each other up and help each other on all levels to find the balance, at least in my understanding. Yeah, I really resonate with that, you know, that we're in, in, in each in our own way here to, to support each other and to move ahead as a collective in, in one way or another. Um, and I, I like... Uh, as you were talking, you know, I was getting this image of um, not just that living our life now in a way that is, you know, productive and that, that meets our needs for creativity or that speaks to what calls us, that we really listen to that and address that. That doesn't only help us to live a good life and then have a good death, but it also mm-hmm. really touches almost on the next step after that of... Um, kind of moving towards the life afterwards right and you talk in your book about having a a next life list so if we sit down regularly and review our life and then there might be things that we think i'm just not going to be able to do that in this life Mm -hmm. that you already start planning for the next life so that really changes the perspective again right of who we are yeah we can operate we can kind of plant some seeds already for our next life to, you know, like with your book, for example, 
it's it, it can also serve as a reminder for you in your next life. Maybe you come across your own book and then you're much quicker to connect to your ideas um, or to update them or to, to move from there. And, and um, yeah, even to think of uh, what would I want to do next life? Like what would I want to focus on or what, have I really struggled in this life and it just doesn't seem to happen, you know, sometimes in relationships or certain issues that they're just hard to change and to shift um, even in one life. Um, yeah. To think about or which direction of study do I want to go into? Like uh, if I had a course of education, would I change it in my next life? Mm. Um, and I, I do think we do have some choice in it. Uh, so the more we can prepare for it now or plant these seeds to connect us to, to those energies or to those topics that will help us in our next lives. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. And at the same time, sometimes I wonder whether, you know, we really know the full picture enough where we are right now to fully appreciate what might be needed in, in another life, you know. But um, just because I, I've, I've talked about this, I think, before in this podcast as well, like from, from past life reviews uh, or past life memories, I found it, um, it hasn't really been sequential, you know. I haven't really had the impression mm -hmm. that my past life sort of followed a, a, a path that was then this and then this and there seemed to be quite, quite, a, quite a lot of variation in terms of awareness and ethics and so on mm -hmm. sometimes more sometimes less you know yeah um, so sometimes I wonder about how linear these existences are but um, but I still believe it's a it's intention is powerful right so if we set the intention to 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 grow and to continue to expand in future lives that's that's a powerful intention. Yeah, and I agree. I found too, even doing my own past life regressions and, and diving into that, that it's, it's not as linear or it doesn't seem to be as linear. <clears throat> it could overlap or it's... And I also don't understand how that all works. Um, but there, there does seem to be like this growth process in a way yeah. uh, that helps us. But what I find interesting, too, is that now we're at this uh, time where everything is being recorded, right? We have a podcast, we have videos of history, we have pictures, books. Uh, I mean, if we don't destroy them, hopefully we have them available in our next lives. And then we can much easier connect to old personalities or find an old personality or kind of look back and see what we did in history. I mean, everything is being much more recorded through the internet, which we didn't have in other lives before. So I, my sense is that that may quicken kind of um, in the next generations for people who have lived lives in this modern time and who come back and who have easier access to that information of their past too. It might quicken the process. Yeah, it's of a really interesting point. Awareness. Yeah. Yeah. 
The other thing I, I was just like to touch on, because you emphasize that quite strongly in your book, and I think it's a really powerful thing that we, in terms of, you know, living a meaningful life, yes, part of it is perhaps certain courses of study and certain uh, ways of assisting others, you know, supporting the planet, whatever it might be that calls us as individuals. But the other really big part is relationships, and you emphasize that quite mm -hmm. a lot, you know, of, of, of focusing on reconciling with people and, and maintaining, uh, I guess, harmonious, you know, ethical relationships. So, yeah, can you talk a bit about that? Yeah. Why that is so important? And that goes <clears throat> a lot more into like the direction of the karma that we have with each other or the connections that we have with each other that um, essentially they, they stay with us uh, or if you see our, ourselves as beings or consciousnesses or essences coming back uh, to earth or coming back into these physical lives to grow um, we tend to grow in groups and we tend to take on different roles each time that we are here. And the different roles help us to get different perspectives, right? So one, one life, it might be my brother and I, and in another life, he might be my boss or my child. So we kind of take these different uh, viewpoints in helping each other. And so the relationships they kind of stay with us past our death. And therefore, we want to make sure that they are harmonious, ideally. That um, a lot of uh, sometimes what you see when you come back to resolve things from the past has to do with issues from the past that we're still trying to resolve. And we get this new blank slate, this new life, this new chance to redo it over and to do it better this time. And in a way that helps that we have this amnesia, we forget what happened. Mm -hmm. Maybe somebody killed us in the past life and we hold grudges, but when we first meet them, we don't remember all of the details. So we get a, a new uh, approach for it. We don't carry all uh, the trauma, right? We'd be carrying so much trauma if we remembered everything from all our past lives. Exactly. Mm. And the trauma is still there. The issues are still there, but they're not like as much in our consciousness as you did this to me. And therefore, I'm not going to talk to you. I'm going to ignore you or I'll do something bad to you. But we kind of get this chance of reconciliation automatically through the different lives. And But if we more consciously take that into account and uh, realize, you know, even my enemies or people that, that I don't like right now, that we don't have enemies, but we have people we just um, don't want to ever see again. Um, that even after we pass away, there's a chance we will see them again. We will be confronted with them again. And how can I make it already better for my part, you know, try to resolve the situation or try to resolve the conflict as much as I can, you know, it always takes two people, but as much as we can to make it more harmonious so that if I see that person again after death or in the next life, there won't be so much we have to work on. We can focus more on our life plan, for example. Yeah. There so will be so less debt to some person. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. So you're not so much in repair mode and more in creative right. mode, perhaps. Yeah. And sometimes that can be really hard, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I think that is kind of the hardest. Um, yeah, because when you look at change and how we change, we change very little in how our some of our traits that we have, how we react to things or how we see other people. And of course, there's good and bad. We might also have merit. Let's say we have, we meet someone, we have a very good relationship and we have a long marriage, for example, that's been very supportive. And because our husband or wife has been there to give us emotional support, to give us support in general, we were able to accomplish, for example, writing a book or following a certain career because we had that support and that kind of healthy uh, relationship, but that might be something that we've earned from past relationships because we've put a lot of work in that before. And so we can also try to do that for our next life. So um, we don't have to worry so much about the conflicts or deal with conflicts, but we can be with someone where as more as support in each of us doing our life, working on our life purpose. Yeah. And, and, you know, as in anybody's life, we have sometimes family that support us or people who are there for us, friends. And then there's some, I don't know, maybe like a terrible boss or somebody who betrayed us or some, someone we just don't, we have a lot of friction with or a family member that we have friction with that we're still kind of working on. And, yeah, right. but the idea is to do it more consciously, to, to consciously think about how would that affect me after I die? Because sometimes people have, uh, they don't talk to each other, like brother and sister don't talk to each other for 10 years because of some stupid argument or something someone said, and it's really petty in, the, in essence, and they lose out on a lot of connection that they could have. Um, and those things we want to, if we can resolve before we die. Yeah. And, and on the flip side, you know, I feel like sometimes just knowing that we will continue these relationships, um, Sometimes there might be things where you just go, well, we can't resolve it right now, but I know that we will, right? So you, you, mm -hmm. you still want to leave it in the best possible way, but, but because you know you'll come back to it at some point. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, so I think too, like forgiveness, reconciliation is very important for us to feel at peace, even with ourselves, right? Because maybe we were the one who started the argument or we were the one who didn't talk to our brother for 10 years out of something really stupid. And then at the end of life, uh, maybe even before we die, we realize how silly and like, how did, why didn't I talk to him? Now I'm dying or he's dying. and We feel that loss. And we don't really want to feel like that. We want to make sure we clear things up as much as we can so that we never have to have regrets. I have a whole section on regrets um, yeah. that we could have um, 
that we want to try to avoid. So yeah. having less regrets about our lives makes our death much easier and happier. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And uh, yeah, I, I, so I was going to ask you, um, uh, you talk about the, the it's an interesting tension for me, like, like the end of life. There's this tension between holding on and letting go. Right, holding on to there might be reasons why we want to hold on. Maybe maybe mm-hmm. we want to hold on to conclude, you know, r- resolve something, reconcile with someone, or to see this relative or see our child for the last time or our grandchild. Mm-hmm. And then the combination, and then at some point there comes this letting go. So yeah, maybe just talk a bit about about that. Yeah, <clears throat> what's interesting is that. Uh, a lot of nurses and doctors too, they say like when people are at the end stage of the, the, the dying process that sometimes they can uh, extend the period or it's, it's almost like we have a little bit of influence on the moment of death and sometimes people do hold on until their loved ones make it to say goodbye or sometimes they... Um, they will wait until everybody's gone or nobody's there and then they'll die uh, so that they don't, their loved ones don't have to witness it. So there seems to be kind of a, a room and a, a time that we can influence, even our body if it's very sick, uh, exactly the moment when we die. I don't think that happens necessarily consciously, but it's just our will to live a few days longer to meet them or to say that's it. Um, now is a good time to die that that happens and um, <clears throat> what were you saying before um, yeah just I just just, just that that the tension between holding on and letting and letting uh, yes, touching yes. On really yeah at some point people yeah just so to let go right so one one thing is one thing is that we might want to hold on especially if we don't have this perspective of there's more to come or it could be a good experience to die. Uh, Some people might just, they're afraid of death and they just want to hold on. They just hold on to the body even though they could let go or they're just suffering. Um, But also our loved ones might hold on to us because they don't understand what happens afterwards and they want us to, to live longer. Um, so there's like this fine line of where we feel like even somebody who has cancer and is going to all kinds of treatments uh, of where you say, I'm going to fight this, I'm going to fight the cancer and do everything that I can. And then there might come a moment of acceptance of, okay, uh, you know, maybe um, what's going to happen is that I will die and how can I make peace with that? Uh, situation so that I don't have to suffer so much um, <clears throat> because it's like the resistance to what I want to happen and what's happening and it's very tricky I think to 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 realize when is the moment to give up trying and trying and trying we might force ourselves we might put our body through a lot of um, stress um, and the moment of letting go and being okay with dying. Very individual. Um, must be a very individual choice. 
for each person has their own set of circumstances, right? Yeah, exactly. And uh, but also we're influenced by our loved ones too, right? If our parents mm. don't want to let us go, we try to appease them, and we might try to stay here and do what they want. Not so much how we feel. We might get a sense of, you know, what I feel like it's it's okay to let go. Uh, it's okay to die, but they might not be ready yet. And then we try to uh, affect ourselves more based on what others, other people want. Um, so there's a whole section in there um, about how to help someone go through death, um, how, maybe how to let go or just be with them. And yeah, so how, how would you, you know, like there's in, in, in traditions, say in, in Tibetan Buddhism, that's quite famous because they emphasize death so much. There are traditions around um, chanting certain mm -hmm. religious uh, mantras, I guess, and songs to sort of support the consciousness leaving the physical body with awareness. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of William Bullman, who's kind of talked about creating modern versions of that, you know, maybe recording audio with sort of affirmations and, and, and uplifting music and so on. Um, I'm not too, I'm familiar with him, more of the out-of-body uh, topics. I'm yeah. not too familiar with the latest work of these rituals. But yeah, a lot of the rituals that we have, um, they might even seem outdated, but they seem to also psychologically help us to, to move on. And especially uh, to be more involved in death and processing death in a way like you know, like in Western society, we try to close ourselves off from it. We don't want to see it. We're scared of it. And to be more okay with, okay, someone's dying. I, I want to see them. I want to be there. I want to help them through it. And even though it might be painful to kind of be there in that experience. I mean, we do have the tendency to push death away, uh, but to open ourselves more up to, to welcome it or to be there uh, for someone. And uh, what I what I like is the work of um, William. Gosh, now I don't get the, the name, but he has a course of um, training people to have shared death experiences before. So there are certain techniques you can do before someone dies, uh, and I took that course two years ago and it's very interesting because you can also plant seeds to trigger that and um and you can there can you can do certain visualizations certain rituals before with each other how to deal with each other even if it happens spontaneously i can talk to my best friend and we can have a kind of agreement how we will what we will do if one of us dies and how we support each other um and those i like a lot so it's, it's kind of it has a lot to do with energetic connecting too yeah um, i love the idea of creating this support structure for death with people around you you know it's such an important transition um, yeah it, it's kind of like you know you can can have uh 
let's say you and I, you know, you could say when I die, I will try to bring it into my experience and that, that's what I will do. And usually has to do with uh, remembering uh, a shared experience, like um, we don't know each other that well, but if I was doing it with my best friend, I could say, well, let's think about the situation where we're both sitting on the beach laughing about X, Y, and Z and like a very yeah. emotional, intense, connective experience. And then we use that as trigger to connect each other after death. Um, so there are different kinds of approaches of, of that. Um, I like the idea a lot and it seems to yeah. it works. Yeah. yeah. But then there's many people who have different beliefs or who, you know, might be in the hospice and they, uh, they might not be open to all of that. Um, to or to afterlife or to other dimensions, and then we can just do the very basic things of just being with them, listening to them, and we don't even have to do so much, but just being there. Sometimes all that's needed, and we can do very simple things, make them laugh, or talk about old memories, and and very practical, simple ways of just helping each other through it. Mm. One of the things that's come up, I've seen a, a few articles about um, with the current coronavirus business, is there's been people, um, you know, grieving or talking about the fact that some people are dying alone or not with their loved ones around yeah. because of the sphere yeah. around the infection. Now, I've also seen uh, people saying, well, they're not really dying alone because a lot of the healthcare workers will take very special care and will you know do the best they can to be mm -hmm. there as loving presence with the person as they as they transition from the physical um but what yeah what, what would be your perspective on this idea of people dying alone uh, it's definitely sad i wish nobody had to die alone um and i don't know how realistic that is that the nurses have all this time to be there with them I, I would assume they probably don't have that much time to go deeply into assisting them, but <clears throat> they're still not alone in the sense that non-physically they do have um, they do have a support system there, so they might not feel as alone as we think they are. Um, but of course, in an ideal world, it would be best to have someone there, friends, family there with them that they can say goodbye, that they have a much better death experience. Uh, but I, I never think anybody is alone at their death. Even if nobody physically is there, they're not going to be alone. Yeah. Yeah, it might be harder for the people left behind who can't be there maybe than for the person. Yeah, that too, them. for them to have the closure. Yeah. And yeah, that's, that's, that's tough. Yeah, yeah, it's a very strange time. It's it's for me too. I'm giving birth in about two weeks, and there's this whole discussion that the father might not be there for birth, or nobody can go into the hospital and you know to assist. And it's kind of a similar situation where you want somebody there to Absolutely. support you, and right now we can't. And I have to somehow deal with that. Um, 
Oh, wow. I would have thought the father and you would be considered as like one unit if you live together and... Um, yeah, they do it for the for the staff mostly, not so much for us, but to protect the staff. Right. Uh, so the less visitors, the better. I, I think he can be there uh, at least for the birth, but there are different hospitals with different rules. Mm. Um, but it's just so interesting, you know. This has never nobody ever thought about. Can I go visit my dying mother? You know, or there, and even the people in the old age homes who just need social support uh, or visitors, then they can't have the visitors, they feel lonely. Uh, or anybody in the hospital having a surgery or going through a tough time, they can't have visitors. So it's definitely a lot harder these days. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'd like to end with a quote from your book and then see if you have anything to add to that. So this is actually the very end of your book. You say, remember, death is not the end. It is the beginning of a different form of existence and a journey that continues. You are the essential part of it. You are essential. That's a great closure. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I have much to add to that, but... But yes, just my message is always appreciate the time that you have, even while you're healthy and you don't have to worry about so many things, but try to make use of it uh, as best as you can. And yeah, take care of your relationships and try to see if you can connect to your life purpose if you're not already doing that and get more involved in that. And I guess we'll all see each other in one way or another after death. And it doesn't have to be a horrible experience. Yeah. Yeah, look, thank you so much, Ines. I really enjoyed your book, Death is Not the End. I highly recommend it. It was really... Um, you know, uplifting, inspiring. It made me reflect a lot about my own life purpose and and to make sure that I um, really live my life in such a way that I can die with some contentment about, you know, how I feel. Thank you too, Kim. I really enjoyed our conversation and just it's just so great to go deep and explore all these different aspects. And yeah, thank you for having me. And I'm open to you know if anybody has concerns or questions, uh, they can so, write so me. So how can people contact you? You know, do you have a website or email? I mean, obviously got an email yeah. address. <clears throat> the best is uh, through my website, inaspire.com, my name. And then there's a uh, a tab for contacting me. Yeah. And that's usually the best way. Yeah. Okay, and you know, I'll also put the link on the notes for this episode and on my website and so on. So. Yeah, and I hope everybody stays as healthy as they can and they don't have to worry about death right now. Um, but if, if they do or if anybody does, they can reach out, no problem. Yeah, yeah, lovely offer. Okay, thank you.